that beautiful hymn. It's hard to follow that up. How can you speak about anything better than having Jesus? I can remember as a young boy, uh, there was a Billy Graham crusade in our area, and of course George Beverly Shea always sang that song. Uh, he sang it very loud and boisterously and with a good voice, but uh, not with the sweetness that we just heard it this morning, but it's a marvelous song with a marvelous truth. And when you stop to think about it, what would you ever really want more than him in your life? Praise the Lord for who he is and what he's done. Well, we are going to continue our brief study on the judgment seat of Christ. If you recall, the last time I was here, we started that and the Two passages, of course, that speak about it probably more than most other passages in Scripture is Romans 14, uh, verses 10 through 42, and we're not going to be turning to those today. I'm just giving you a very brief review. And the other one is 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. Uh, there's other passages, of course, that allude to it, but these two are the two primary passages used when you start discussing the judgment seat of Christ. And I just want to say up front, you know, lessons like this uh, are not to discourage you, <laughs> and yet they can be discouraging because you, it forces you to look at your life in relationship to your walk with the Lord, and you say, oh, boy, am I going to get any reward at all, you know? But, you know, praise God, you know, he, he lets us know. Uh, when he brings us into his family, uh, we come with all the privileges that go along with it, but we also have to accept the responsibilities that go along with being a part of his family. So what I'd like to do is very, very briefly just review the things we talked about last time we were here, and that's for two reasons. One, to refresh the minds of those who were here, uh, where we were at, and at least for those who were not here, to fill you in as to what we talked about and uh, what leads us into what our topic will be today concerning it. Uh, I mentioned the two passages involved. Uh, we pointed out is there, it's critical we understand the impact of the judgment seat of Christ, and it's also mainly the Bema seat of Christ, on a, as a believer in this life and, of course, in the life to come throughout eternity. We also pointed out the reality of the judgment seat of Christ, and there's two passages that I mentioned make it very clear that Christ is the judge at the Bema seat. When he judges, his, his perfect righteousness is balanced by his perfect love. You know, we're told in Scripture we're not to judge one another, and the reason is uh, we, we don't have what the Lord has. The Lord is the only one who is able to really judge righteously and out of love. And he will do that on behalf of his dear children. Uh, we mentioned who are the subjects that will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we emphasize particularly 2 Corinthians 5, the first eight verses, before it mentions the judgment seat of Christ. And the four descriptions in verses 1, 5, 7, and 8 can only be applied to the New Testament church. It's the body of Christ. It's Christians who will be at the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ. So the marvelous thing is, you know, we're talking about judgment, 
And a lot of people say, well, you know, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm not under judgment anymore. Well, that's true concerning your sins. All right. Once you accept Jesus Christ, you are free from eternal damnation. Okay? But you see, the fact that I'm here in glory before the judgment seat of Christ, the marvelous truth is, I'm in glory. Now, not the full extent of it yet at this point, but I am now absent from the body and present with the Lord. So praise the Lord if you are at the judgment seat of Christ, because that means you knew him as your personal savior. If you are not at the judgment seat of Christ when that happens, the only judgment that awaits you is the great white throne judgment, and you do not want to be there. That's the judgment of the lost forever. So the judgment seat of Christ takes place in glory after the rapture. And, of course, we just went through a lot more. This is just to mention at this point in time. Uh, the passages that we use for immediately after the rapture of the church, it was 2 Timothy 4.8, Philippians 2.6, 1 Thessalonians 4.13 through 18, Revelation 19, 7.8.14, and before his return to the earth, which is the day of the Lord. So in other words, the judgment seat of Christ is going to take place after the rapture, rapture but before the day of the Lord, which comes basically at about the 6th. Uh, seal is open and you know, and that's when the church comes back to the earth with Christ. So it's in between that period where you have the, the judgment seat of Christ, you have the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we're given this marvelous garment that we're going to wear, and then we're going to come back with him. So it's taking place during that period of time. And then we looked at the purpose of the judgment seat of Christ, two things. First of all, it's present motivation for believers. You see, the fact that we know someday we are going to stand before him at the judgment or beam of seat of Christ should motivate us to make sure that we're living godly in Christ Jesus. In fact, when you talk about the rapture, what's the manifestation there? What's so important about looking forward to the rapture? We're told in the scripture, if you keep your eyes focused on the Lord could come at any moment, it's going to purify your life. And if you look at your own spiritual life as to how anxious you are to walk in obedience to the Lord and his word, it has a direct correlation as to how soon you think the Lord is coming back. And it's the same thing with the beam of seat. It should motivate me now knowing that someday I am going to stand before him and give an account of the way I lived after I was saved. And that's important you understand. It's after you were saved. You know, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we all know by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then comes verse 10. And we don't use that one so much, but it's equally important. It says you've been saved unto good works. You see, he just didn't save you to take away your sin. I mean, if there was nothing else that he had planned for you as a child of his down here, he might as well have just taken you home the moment you accepted him. But you see, when we are saved, 
you see, and I look forward to that point where I'm going to stand before him and give an account. Well, that should motivate me. And that's what we emphasize, is present motivation for the way we live as believers. And, of course, it's also then to reward believers. You know, it's called the Bema, Judgment Seat of Christ. But it's basically to reward those who have accepted the Lord. He's going to reward us for our faithful service to him. But, of course, the realization is the greater your faithfulness here, the greater your reward will be there. The less you are faithful to the Lord here, well, you're still going to be in glory, <laughs> but your reward is going to be diminished because you didn't serve him faithfully here. See, the present motivation is to help us to make sure that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and you know, you look at Paul's life, and in fact, two of the uh, things we're going to be talking about today is the basis of judgment. What is, it, what is the basis of the judgment? Well, it's obvious two of them come from Paul, and the other one is from the Lord himself in the Gospel of Luke. But Paul was so driven by the fact that he was going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. That's what drove Paul to be the type of servant he was before the Lord. He knew what his life was before he met the Lord on the road to Damascus. Oh, he was terrible. He persecuted the Lord. He hated the Lord. He hated the Lord's people. And now he met the Lord face to face. And his life changed. He knew in a moment who he was. And he was told he would suffer many things in this world. But he was going to be used of the Lord. And the judgment seat of Christ really was Paul's major focus. He wanted to make sure that when he stood before the Lord at that time, he would be told of his faithfulness to the Lord. And that's kind of where we're leading up to today. So we, that's what we talked about last time. Now today we're going to talk about what is the basis for judgment. Well, the question is best answered by three different New Testament passages which illustrate three different truths concerning the judgment seat of Christ, which is going to be the basis for the judgment. The first one is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, so turn there, if you would. And here is Paul using the analogy of a builder. And you know, it's interesting as you go through this, you can see pretty easily exactly what Paul has in mind through the Spirit of God here. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting with verse 9. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's cultivated field. Ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth on it. But let every man take heed how he buildeth upon it. For outer foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day 
shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall test every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built upon it, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, and that's suffer loss of reward. But he himself shall be saved, yet as by fire. Now the Lord will bless the reading of his word. Now here, of course, we have the basis for judgment related to a builder. And the church at Corinth had believers who were acting like unbelievers. We know that the church of Corinth was not an ideal church to follow. A lot of problems there. They were focusing on men rather than God and arguing over who was most important in the church. They needed to recognize that it was God who gifted individuals to minister to, and as we see from here, to build up the body of Christ. And here's the key that we have before us. Be a builder to build up the body of Christ. Here is a local body of Christ. And right now you are a builder. How good a builder is going to determine rewards when you get to glory. You know, it's interesting. We see that the illustration of the builder, that the proper use of spiritual gifts is a basis for judgment. Now, we're not going to get into all things about spiritual gifts. The, the bottom line is this. Every believer has a spiritual gift, and some maybe more than one. Everyone has a spiritual gift. And the basis of the judgment that you're going to receive in relationship rewards is how you use your spiritual gift. All right? It's not to sit and worry about what other people's spiritual gift is. We know in Corinth, they sat and argued and argued over and who had the best gifts and all this kind of stuff. Well, nothing was getting done but chaos. But the point we want to make sure you understand here is how you use your spiritual gift is going to be one of the bases upon which rewards will be given. And, you know, when it talks about being building here, it says in verse 9, we are God's fellow workers, God's field, and God's building. Ephesians 4.12 tells us God has gifted individuals to the church for the equipping of the saints in the work of ministry and building the body of Christ. 1 Peter 4.10 and 11 tells us that every believer has a service or a speaking gift given to them. And in some cases, you may have both. You know, there's all kinds of service gifts, but even speaking gifts. You know, there's at least three categories of speaking gifts. Uh, you know, some people say, well, the only real speaking gift is that of a teacher. Well, that's not true. That is one of the, the gifts that God has given to the church, teachers who teach the body of Christ. And I've been given evidently that gift, so I've been told I never felt I had that gift. But obviously, people think I have it because I keep having to use it. 
Well, I'm going to be rewarded as to how well I do my teaching of God's word. And that's why I take it very seriously. But you see, also, it tells in Scripture, for elders, you, are, have, you must have the ability or gift to be apt to teach. That's different than being, having the gift to teach, being apt to teach. You cannot really be an elder in a church if you do not know the word of God. And you can't share it with others. You know, as an elder, I was called upon many times to minister to people in various difficult situations. Well, what am I going to do? I'll be honest. I go, oh, Lord, why me? Why, why didn't you ask brother so-and-so to go and do that? But it's because, you know, I knew I was going to have to minister to them, and I can't do that in myself. I have nothing to give you. But you see, I go with this in my hand, and a prayer before, and a prayer on the way, and a prayer before we start, but you see, I have to be able to teach and be able to direct them, apt to teach. But you know, if you're not an elder, you're still not off the hook because we're told in Scripture that every last one of them is to do what? To give an answer to anyone of the hope that is within you. And you don't just do that by saying, well, this is the way it is. You do that with people you witness to by using the word of God. You see, all of us really do have a speaking gift to some degree, and you're to use it. I don't know how well you use it. But you see, the others, and some have ministry gifts. You know, even as an elder, I can remember doing manual labor, building the church and all the things like that. There's nothing wrong with this because you're an elder doesn't mean you don't do anything but sit there and make decisions and deal with spiritual things in the Bible. You see, but all of us have some type of gift. And, of course, I've already said this, and I'll say it again. Do you know what your spiritual gift is? Are you even really concerned about what it is? Well, you better be. Because when the Spirit of God came into your life, he brought some spiritual gift with him. And he expects you to use it. And when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, how you use that spiritual gift is going to be the basis of reward or loss of reward. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I know we have builders in the meeting here. I, I did a little building. My uncles were builders. Uh, when I was nine years old, uh, I was literally told by my uncles, Bob, it's time for you to learn how to work. In the summers, that's what I did. I had to go work with them as they were contractors. I hated every minute of it. I learned I was not going to be a carpenter. But I learned an awful lot. And, you know, these guys were good carpenters. That's why I had them build my house. And, you see, it's important how you build. It's important the materials you use. I remember one of my first jobs was sorting lumber. You know, they would go and order the two-by-fours, you know, for roughing in the house. Well, they always wanted number two wood, nothing worse than that uh, for the roughing in. But you see, even there, they weren't satisfied, so I'd have to sit there. And they told me what to do. You look down this two-by-four, this two-by-twelve, whatever it was. There's certain things I want you to look for. But if there's a big twist in it, throw it in the heap over there. 
If it's filled with knots, throw it in the heap over here. You only keep the stuff that is what we feel right to build this house. You see, what the materials you use is important. Well, the material we use is this. This is the basic tool and material that we use in our service for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we are God's fellow workers. We're God's building, and we are expected to build. Now, three things concerning our spiritual gifts will be the basis of this judgment. In verses 10 and 11, we are responsible to use it to build. That's why you were given the gift, not to sit on it, not to talk about it, not to argue with somebody else about your gift and their gift and all that type of stuff. You are to use the gift the Lord gives you. You say, where are you to build? Well, verse 11, on Jesus Christ. Why on Jesus Christ? Because he is the only foundation on which you can build. And I learned, again, as a youngster, if the foundation wasn't any good, my uncles made the mason tear it all out and do it again. Because, you see, the structure is only going to be as good as the foundation upon which it is built. And we as believers have a foundation that we are to build upon, and that foundation is the Lord Jesus Christ. It does, somebody has said, it doesn't matter how hard you work, how sincere you are, or how hard you try. If you do not build your life on Jesus Christ, you are not building on a solid foundation. Keep in mind the foundation. Whatever your spiritual gift is, you look to the Lord for wisdom, guidance, direction, strength, courage, whatever it takes to use the gift he gave you to his honor and glory and to what? Build up the body of Christ. This meeting will only flourish to the degree that everybody here exercises their spiritual gift that the Lord gave them. I trust you're doing that. If not, I hope your heart is ready to be pricked right now by the Spirit of God to start using it. Now, how are we to build? Well, in verse 10, you have this little word, take heed. That simply means carefully. I'm to build carefully. You see, the manner in which we build and the materials we use must be carefully considered. We are to build on Christ. He's the foundation. It's not your ability. It's not your desire, oh, I'm going to do a good job. You have to build on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. He's the one that will enable you to build, use your gift to build the body of Christ. We are to build on Christ using the right materials. What's the right material? Well, number one is the word of God. Number two is prayer, spending time. You know, when the Lord calls upon you to use your gift, 
Well, pray about it. Lord, give me the strength, the right attitude, the desire to do the best I can do with the gift that you gave me. And I'm depending upon you to work through me to perform and so I can help build the body of Christ. So the manner in which we build is very important. Be sure you understand that. Now, and the reason for this is in verses 12 and 13. There is coming a day of reckoning. Each one works will be revealed. Where are they going to be revealed? At the judgment seat of Christ. The and then we have the little phrase too, how is it going to be revealed? Well, in verse 14, it's by fire. Okay? And, of course, it talks about the wood, the hay, and the stubble. That's the type of stuff that will go poof up in smoke. And then there's the, the, the gold and the fine jewels and things. And actually, the hotter the fire, the more pure those things become. You see, it's going to be tested by fire. I just want to mention something because I'm not so sure that's going to be literal fire. It could be. I, I don't know everything. Okay? It could be literal fire. But I just want to refer you to Revelation chapter 1, verse 14, and chapter 2, verse 18, and chapter 19, verse 12, where it says this, the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ are likened to a flame of fire. You know, when you stand before the Lord and you're looking eye to eye, you know, we will be there in our changed, glorified bodies, rejoicing that we're there, but at the same moment we're understanding at this point we are being judged. And the implication could be here that the eyes of Jesus Christ, like a flame of fire, will test our works. I don't know how it's all going to work. If it's going to be one by one, or it could be everybody at the same time. But just imagine his eyes looking into your eyes with a purpose of reward and lack of reward. The wood and the hay of the stubble and the gold and the precious stones. We will know without a shadow of a doubt that all these things we did in our own strength and for our own glory and all the stuff we thought we were doing, such a great job in doing. No, I don't deserve any reward for that. You'll recognize it immediately. And those things you did on the foundation, the Lord Jesus Christ and his power, his might, to help build up the church, the body of Christ, he's going to reward you for. See, the judgment seat of Christ is not something that we should dread. I one time used the wrong word at another meeting, and some brother really got upset. I said, I, I don't think you should be, you're not going to be scared. That's a cowardly fear. Oh, there's going to be reverence and awe. Don't get me wrong. I'm going to understand who I'm standing before. And we know what John did when he saw him in his glory the first time. He fell at his feet as though he were dead. I'll understand his reverence, the awe. But I'm going to be there. I'm not worried about my sin anymore. That's done. That's why I'm in glory. Now I'm there to be rewarded. 
But I will find out I'm not going to be rewarded for everything that I did in my own power, in my own strength, and for my own glory. I've already gotten that. There's my reward right there. He's going to reward me for those things that he saw in my use of my spiritual gift to his honor and glory, to the building up, truly building up of the saints of God. So whatever your spiritual gift is, if you're not using it, get with it. It's important. It's very important. Someday, you're going to give an account for how you used your spiritual gift. All right? Well, let's move on to the second one. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 29. We could spend more time, but we don't have more time. This is the second basis that we read that Paul brings before us. And we're going to look uh, particularly just at, um, starting with verse 24. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Know ye not that they who run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that you may obtain or win. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to be obtained a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I, there, I therefore, Paul speaking, so run, and that is not as uncertainty. In other words, he, run, he says, I run with an aim. So fight I, not as one that beateth the air. In other words, I fight with a purpose in mind, but I keep uh, under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that at any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be cast away, better rendered, disqualified, or disapproved. All right? Now here we have, as the example, where we had the builder in the first one, here we have an athlete. Now, some of you here have been athletes. You know what an athlete is. Uh, that's one thing that I was, was an athlete. So this speaks pretty loudly to me. I can relate to it. Now, you see, as you look at this particular here, it's, it's basically running a race. Now, Paul's first point is very clear. Entering a race does not guarantee winning it. Okay. Anybody can enter a race. You, you, you watch these massive marathons. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds. But they're not all going to win. See, in running a literal race, you run to win, but only one will win. But when it comes to what we're talking about here, you have to understand, you see, you and I are not guaranteed a victorious Christian life and rewards at the Bema seat because we have taken the initial step of accepting the Lord as our Savior. Now, praise God if you've accepted the Lord as your Savior. That's paramount because if you didn't, and you won't be at the Bema seat. But you see, if you have taken the Lord as your Savior, you will be there. And, you know, the point is, just because you've accepted the Lord doesn't guarantee you are going to have a victorious Christian life. 
And unfortunately, there are many who don't. Because you see, they start the race, but they run out of gas quickly. You see, you have to run to win the race. In this case, is to win rewards. Now, I'm not one who preaches that the only reason we should serve the Lord is to get a reward. I think if my only reason for serving the Lord is so I can get rewards, I've already lost my reward. But on the other hand, I have to acknowledge I am to run the race with rewards in mind because I'm going to get some if I run the race properly. And there's a few things that Paul <clears throat> mentions here that I can relate to as having been an athlete myself, both in high school and college and those types of things. You know, these first uh, five verses of 1 Corinthians 10 illustrate this point that spiritual privileges, as I said, do not guarantee spiritual victory. Note verse 24, the last part. He says, run in such a way that you may win. And it's like you all may win. If you were from the south, you say y'all all the time. But here, that's not what we're saying, y'all. We're saying you all may win. That's why you're running their waste, that you all, all of us may win. You see, what we have to understand is I'm not in competition with you, nor are you in competition with me. Okay? We're not competing against each other. We're to run the race together. All with the same idea of winning. And what's the winning? Is that well, good, and done faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things, and that's all we'll ever be is faithful in a few things. He will reward us with great things. But you see, you have to run the race. And you know, your struggle is, not, is against your own sinful flesh. Why is it we find it so difficult to really run the race? Well, our sinful flesh gets in the way. Our adversary, the devil, is at work. Let me tell you, he's at work. The moment you get earnest about using your gift, Something's going to come up that's going to try to discourage you, and that's something that's someone. Satan will try everything he can to give you an excuse not to exercise what you're to do before the Lord is one of his children. You're to run the race to win, not to finish in the middle of the pack. I don't care, just why I cross the finish line. You know, there's some Christians like that. All that matters to me is I'm going to glory. Well, that is important. I'm glad you're going to glory. But I'm telling you something. When you get to glory, you're not going to be totally satisfied if you get no reward. <laughs> oh, you'll still be in heaven. You'll have some little menial task he'll give you to do. But you know, and I've often said this, and I, I, it's, sometimes, it's basically with tongue in cheek, but at the same time, I really feel this way. I hope when I get to glory, I get a big gift. Why? Because that means I serve the Lord well here. And that's the only way you're going to get a big gift. I'm not saying I'm going to get one. 
I said, I'm hoping I get one. But I also know that's not just going to happen because I want it to happen. You know, it's, it's interesting. You struggle is against your own sinful flesh, your adversary, the devil, and there's one other enemy. And particularly for young people, but not just young people, it's the love for this world. I'll tell you, you fall in love with this world, and you're not going to do very well, and you're running your race for the Lord. The world is your enemy. He's the one, your greatest enemy. And what direction will the world take you? Down. It will take you away from the things of the Lord. It'll never bring you to the things of the Lord. You see, there's things you have to do. And I can recall, you know, all the hard work that I had to do during a scholarship in tennis to college, which paid my way. I couldn't have gone to school. The Lord had his hand in that. But as a youngster, I worked and worked and worked, hitting thousands of tennis balls every day against the wall. And it paid off. It paid off. You see, you have to understand something. If you want victory, you have to work for victory. If you want reward, just like the athlete, you know, you see the star athletes, you think they just happen to be that way? You wouldn't believe the work they do to get to that point. And that's the way it is in spiritual things as well. If I want to be rewarded, I have to be like the athlete. You run the race to win. You do what it takes to do to get there. And we all can win. See, we're not running against each other. We're running together for the purpose of building up the body of Christ and standing before him to be rewarded. Well, we have to uh, move on to the third one. We can't exhaust any of these. The third one is in Luke chapter 16. So just turn there so you have it. You can put a marker there and you can look at it a little bit. We're not going to read through the whole thing because there's just not time. I'm just going to comment on it. But it's basically the first 13 verses of Luke chapter 16 where the Lord here is talking about a steward. So we've had the builder as an example. We've had the athlete as an example. And here we have the steward. Now, of course, here the Lord teaches his disciples a lesson on stewardship. And who is a steward anyway? Well, a steward is one who is entrusted with the management of another person's possessions. We are stewards of God. We're stewards of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he has given us so many possessions He's entrusted us with so many things. And he expects us to make good use of those particular things. In verses 1 through 3, it tells us the steward was undisciplined, for he squandered his master's possessions. You know, if you're not using your spiritual gift, if you're not running the race the way you're supposed to, you're squandering what the Lord gave you. Do you think you're going to be rewarded for that? Not a chance. Verses 4 through 7 tell us we have uh, 
He's about a shrewd businessman in that he made provisions for his own welfare, but with little regard for his master's welfare. You know, I've known a lot of Christians who are great businessmen, women who are wonderful teachers. I mean, you can, doctors, whatever. And they're excellent in their field of work down here. But for some reason, they don't have the same time for the Lord. You see, don't squander your gifts on the things of this world. Who is your master? He's the Lord. And he's given you all kinds of things to use to his honor and glory in the building up of the saints of God. You're his steward. He's given you the permission to use these things for his honor and glory. And, you know, the basic idea of this, because there's a lot of ramifications on this little lesson from the Lord here. But the idea here is the sons of this world, which are unbelievers, and sometimes carnal Christians might be included in that, are more artful and discerning or wise in material affairs than the sons of light or believers are in spiritual affairs. And I know quite a few Christian men, particularly, who are fantastic in their worldly production and what they made of themselves in this life. Successful. But call upon them to do something for the Lord, and oh, you know, I got too much work. I'm just so busy at work. I, I'm so tired when I get home at night. Well, so what? I bet you did some of that work for yourself when you were tired. You know, we have to understand something. We are stewards. And we're going to be held accountable for how we use the things that the Lord possesses and gives us to possess here. In verses 9 through 13, Jesus tells them to invest their time, their talents, their treasures in eternal things. Be faithful. In using these little things God has entrusted to you here so he can reward you with greater things in eternity. You see, as I said before, you know, I'm not here to make you feel bad. I'm here to encourage you to use what the Lord has given you to his honor and glory to the building up of the saints of God. I mean, who is your master? Well, I know you know the answer to that. But be careful how you answer that. See, is he really your master? Are you really his steward in your mind's eye? Well, if that's true, then I'm going to do it the best I can to serve him, have his best interest at heart, his children's best interest at heart. You see, all of these things are important because, you see, someday we're going to stand before him and give an account of the ways that he has blessed us and how we have used those things. Well, our time is about God here. You know, I just want to mention believers will be rewarded for their faithfulness. 
We all know that. You know, we read in scripture, we all want to hear that little phrase, well done, thou good and faithful servant. It doesn't say, well done, thou good and successful servant. Sometimes we're more concerned about our success than being faithful. It's the faithful servant that was rewarded in this in, in Luke's gospel here, according to it was the faithful one. And that's what he's looking for us to do as well. You know, the key here is anything you do out of love for Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God will be rewarded. Putting it in a negative sense, anything you do out of love for yourself in your own power and for your own glory you will not be rewarded. Sounds makes sense, doesn't it? You see, I'm looking forward to standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Number one, it means I'm there. But I also want to see how faithful a servant I was. I know there's going to be some disappointment in my eyes or heart. I don't know. It's hard to explain. I know in Scripture it says there will be no tears in heaven. And yet, it does say somewhere that he will wipe away all our tears. Where do you think that's going to happen? Well, I don't know for sure, but I have a feeling. It's as we stand at the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to see the things where we just did it for us. But we'll recognize it immediately. Yeah, I don't deserve a reward. But I'm sure it's going to affect us. And there may be a tear. But see, he's going to wipe that away. And there's also going to be rewards for the faithfulness. And then what's he going to say to me? Enter in to the joy of your Lord. Now, what my service will be throughout eternity, it will be determined in relationship to the rewards we receive. The greater the rewards, the greater the service for the Lord. That's why I want a big job up there. Because that means I served him well down here. I'm just going to close with a little poem that I came across by, <clears throat> by Martha Snell Nicholson. I don't know who she is. But it's entitled, His Plan for Me. And we'll close with this. When I stand at the judgment seat of Christ, and he shows his plan for me, the plan of my life as it might have been, had he had his way, and I see how I blocked him the here and checked him there, and I would not yield my will. Well, there will be grief in my Savior's eyes, grief though he loves me still. Would he have me rich and I stand there poor, stripped all of all but his grace? Well, memory runs like a hunted thing down the paths I cannot trace. Lord, of the years that are left to me, I give them to thy hand. Take me and break me and mold me to the pattern that thou hast planned. Shall we pray? Our gracious God and dear Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for the great loving Father that you are. We thank you for your dear Son, our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who equips us to, to fulfill every desire that you have set before us. Oh, Lord, may we just learn from these 
brief lessons on the judgment seat of Christ, how important it is for us to be good and faithful servants. May we run the race to win. May we truly use our gifts to build up the body of Christ. May we be good stewards of the manifold grace of God in our lives. Please help us, Lord, to apply these truths in our lives as we move forward. We just commit this assembly to your care and keeping. Thank you for the time that we've been able to be with them. We ask your continued blessing upon them. May they continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and have a real zeal to live for thee and to serve thee, knowing that someday they will be rewarded when they stand before thee. We love you, Lord, and thank you for all you've done for us and for all that you're yet to do. Part us now with your blessing. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.